The sound of torn flesh echoed loudly through the milky eyes surrounding them. Someone with a weak stomach rushed to the side. Long faces were haunted by the actions they were about to do, and some made prayers, asking for forgiveness what they had to do in order to survive. For something so mundane, the snip of each torn skin was too loud, and they knew that they would always remember this moment. Lips quivering open, they taste the flesh of a human being for the first time. I'm Joyce Grace, and this is Shots of Endorphins. In today's episode, I'll be telling you about one of the most dramatic true survival stories when ragged survivors of the Andes flight disaster were rescued more than two months after their plane crashed in the mountains of South America. The flight which carried a well-known rugby union team landed at an altitude of over 3,600 meters, but miraculously, 16 hardy men survived to tell the tale in what is known locally as the miracle of the Andas. Now remember y'all, all information used was taken from different sources for informational purposes only. Now let's continue on to the story. On the 13th of October, Uruguayan Air Force flight was carrying the old Christian club rugby union team from Montevideo, Uruguay and their families to Santiago, Chile. There they had a match against the Chileans, which was a demonstration of how rugby was beginning to take off in South America. But before the tragic event occurred, there had already been issues already assimilated. Due to the weather of the flight path over Argentina being foul, the plane had already been forced to land and spend one night in an Argentinian airfield. Now, the captain warned his 45 passengers as a right trip across the Andes' highest peak would be impossible. So instead, the flight would head south going parallel to the mountain range until it reached a mountain pass that would take it out of the dangerous mountains. Something that was said to be very simple so there was no need to worry. However, that plan failed. The peak was shrouded in deep, low-lying clouds, and in an era where piloting was done almost entirely by hand, steering the plane to safety quickly became an almost impossible task for the pilot. It seemed that as they approached the Chilean border, they passed over an area of the mountains so remote that none of the mountains had been named or explored. That's when everything went wrong. The plane's wing suddenly struck an unnamed peak and lost its right wing, plunging its passengers into chaos as the plane veered horribly and quickly lost the other wing as the mountains closed in around it. After that, the useless body of the aircraft sank like a stone, smashed into the mountainside, and then finally came into a screeching burning halt in a snowbank. The same snowbank in which the fateful mountain would later be christened the Glacier of Tears. Miraculously enough, given the force of the impact, only 12 were killed outright by the crash. The survivors found themselves almost 12,000 feet up with little rations and almost no cold weather gear. Due to the deadly crash, when the seats of the plane were all smashed together by the impact, many of the survivors had injuries and could not walk due to broken legs. 
And you have to understand that being that high up in the mountains would kill anyone if they didn't have any way to protect themselves against the elements. At night, the temperature would drop below freezing and their only shelter was the wreckage on the plane. When it crashed, it had split into two and the survivors found themselves huddled in the frontmost section of the plane with a giant hole letting in the wind and snow. All night, the freezing winds kept them awake and suffering. The snowbank, which had probably saved the lives of the others, would prove to be a mixed blessing and curse, as the cold killed five of the most gravely injured people that first night on the mountain, and that included their only doctor on board. With many of the survivors wounded, little food and no mountain equipment, the survival prospects of the remaining passengers seemed, well, bleak. But they didn't lose hope. Yet. Luckily, two survivors were medical students who used the splintered wreckage of the plane to improvise splints for the array of broken limbs that had to be treated and other parts were ingeniously salvaged to make goggles for preventing snow blindness. After no rescue came the next day, they used luggage and clothing to block up the hole keeping the elements at bay. Unfortunately, few of them had jackets and their shoes were designed for playing rugby, not skating down the side of a mountain in the winter. So during the day, it was warm enough to lounge outside the plane, but at night, their only warmth came from the body heat of their fellow survivors. The disappearance of the plane had of course been noticed, but as the wreckage was surrounded by white across the land, it was impossible to spot from the air against the snowbank, and attempts to write SOS with lipstick proved to be futile. Little by little, the rations began to dwindle as the only food on the board were small bars of chocolate the airline gave to passengers and several bottles of wine. They did their best to ration these, but they quickly ran out. They were able to melt snow by placing it on metal they had ripped out of the seats. By placing water bottles under it, they could collect water, but it was a slow process. The survivors huddled around a salvaged radio praying for news, but on the 11th day, all they heard was that the search had been abandoned and that they were on their own. Upon hearing the news, everyone broke down into tears and prayer except for one member, Gustavo Nicolich. He told everyone it was good news because they were going to rescue themselves. By giving up hope of being rescued, they could finally make the tough decisions that lay ahead to save themselves. Giving up hope was the only way to survive. The courage of one person kept the group going. The survivors knew they would have to climb down the mountain, but the combination of altitude sickness, malnourishment, snow blindness, and the extreme cold at night made this almost impossible. They decided that the only way to survive was to eat the remains of their dead friends and family. At first, this decision didn't go over very well, considering the passengers were all Roman Catholic. But as starvation set in, they justified it by agreeing that if they died, they would want their friends to survive by eating them. Because of the altitude and temperature, the dead passengers were perfectly preserved and the survivors were able to cut out greasy chunks of flesh from posteriors of the dead. Without resorting to cannibalism, none of them would have made it out of the mountain. So Roberto Canessa took the plunge and used the sharpest glass edge to begin cutting the flesh of his fellow family and friends. 
With humiliation, resignation, and gratefulness, he reverently cut each piece knowing these were loved ones that were helping them survive even after death. However, their numbers still dwindled as time went by from the cold and bleakness of the mountain, and on the 29th of October, a disaster took them by surprise. While they were asleep, an avalanche swept through the camp and killed eight survivors, including Nicolish and the rugby team's captain, Marcelo Perez. Buried under snow for days, the small number who had survived watched Liliana Methol, the last woman among their number, die, and they feared suffocation themselves until one was able to poke a hole through the snow with a long metal pole. Despite yet more misfortune, the remaining men clung to life with desperate determination. Soon, they decided some of them would have to leave the dubious shelter of the wreckage and seek help. For if they didn't, then there will be no hope of rescuing these remote mountains. After some deliberation, a group of the fittest and most able men were picked to strike out and search for help. They were given the best remaining food and the warmest clothes and then set out for their journey. To the west, on the Chile side of the mountains, they lay a peak so high that it seemed impassable for men without any proper mountain equipment and the men headed east towards Argentina. There they found the plain's tail, but nothing of any use. Despondent, they returned to their huddled friends at the crash site and told them that the great mountains to the west would have to be conquered if they wanted to survive. The main problem with that was the nights. The mountain was too big to scale in a day and outside the plane wreckage, the bitter cold after sundown would kill any exposed man. The only thing that the exhausted and malnourished men could do was build makeshift sleeping bags and send three rugby players, Nando Parado, Tintin Vintinson, and the last one being Canessa, out into the unknown. Later, the three men would describe their first night in the sleeping bags as the worst of their life, as death from exposure seemed a real possibility. When the morning dawned, however, they were all still alive and able to go on. On the third day, despite almost running out of food and perilously thin oxygen, the three men reached the summit of the mountain and saw the green lands beyond. They sent Vintinson back to the wreckage by sled to get food before beginning to descend the great peak. Nine days into the great trek, Parado and Canessa were below the snow line but collapsed by the river, too exhausted to go on. Then, suddenly, the bleary-eyed Canessa spotted what looked like a man on a horseback across the river. Convinced that he was hallucinating, he beckoned to Parado and the other men confirmed what he thought. That they were looking at men, not one, but three riding their horses on the opposite bank. Over the noise of the river, it was impossible to explain the predicament to the men, but they were just able to make out one of the horsemen promising to return the next day. They waited for one more night and day, until the three men returned, threw them bread, and even more crucially, paper and a pen. Parado wrote what had happened, tied the paper to a rock, and hurled it across the torrent. The first horseman, a tough Chilean arriero, 
or a muleteer called Sergio Cantalan, gave them a sign he had understood and galloped back west for many miles until he reached the police station at the town of Puente Negro and excitedly told them the amazing news of, of the crash survivors. Someone mentioned that several weeks before, the father of Carlos Baez, who was desperately searching for any possible news about the aircraft, had asked them about the Andes crash. The arreros could never have imagined that these two men would be the first of the survivors of that crash to be found. Those remaining at the crash site never gave up hope and never stopped listening to that small radio, their one and only connection to the world. The radio crackled to life and they heard that Parado and Canessas had been rescued. They knew that help would be on the way. On December 22nd, just three days short before Christmas, a day many of them probably believed they wouldn't live to see, a miracle happened. Two helicopters carrying search and rescue climbers arrived. The expedition with Parado on board was not able to reach the crash site until the afternoon due to the difficulties of air travel through the Andes. The weather was very poor and the two helicopters were able to take only half of the survivors. They departed leaving the rescue team and remaining survivors at the crash site to once again sleep in the fuselage until a second expedition could arrive the following morning. The second expedition arrived at daybreak on the 23rd of December and rescued the remaining survivors. All the survivors were taken to the hospital in Santiago and treated for altitude sickness, dehydration, frostbite, broken bones, scurvy, and malnutrition. Out of the 27 passengers that survived the crash, only 16 made it down off the mountain. They had been trapped at the site of the crash for 72 days and all lived to tell the tales to a world that was gripped by their great tale of survival and endurance. Such perseverance in helping the human mind and body continue the trek down a dangerous mountain. As adrenaline pumped through their veins and the weight of all the survivors were on those men as they seeked for help, I can't even imagine what must have crossed their minds in those moments while they faced death head on. But one thing I noticed with Nikolish was that he used reverse psychology. Although he said there wasn't hope, there was. Maybe not in someone coming to rescue them, but hope in finding a way out of that terrible situation by climbing that long trek and making it their coldest survival. episode on Shots of Endorphins was produced by me, Joyce Grace, and a shout out to my research team. Heads up, Shots of Endorphins has its very own website now, so you can visit the site and listen to the podcast at shotsofendorphins.com. You can also follow the show on Facebook and Instagram by searching up Shots of Endorphins or subscribing to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or any other streaming services you're listening to. And when you do, don't forget to shoot me a greeting. It's nice to meet new people. As always, Thanks for listening, and don't forget to smile!